0: Voice of Fintech.
1: Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech Africa series. I'm Rudi Fala, the founder of Voice of Fintech podcast. In this series you will hear inspirational
0: stories of entrepreneurs, investors, incumbents and ecosystem hub leaders from Africa, and this episode is hosted by Stacy. <music> Welcome to Voice of Fintech. I'm Stacey Jafta and today I'll be chatting with Boothle Gosla, Africa CEO of Jumo. Jumo was founded in 2015. And is dedicated to building and operating a financial services platform for people who have limited or no access to finance using advanced data science and machine learning jumo creates savings and credit products for entrepreneurs in emerging markets as well as a financial services infrastructure for partners such as telcos and banks in just over five years of operation jumo has dispersed more than 2.5 billion usd in loans and served over 17 million customers and small businesses. They are active in six markets, including Ghana, Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda, Zambia, and most recently, Cote d'Ivoire. In this episode, Boothler and I touch upon being an entrepreneur at a really young age, building business units from the ground up. We dive really deep into Boothler's MBA paper that touches on gender diversity and why we're not seeing the full benefits of financial inclusion in South Africa. Then we take a dive into pay equity and how we have to move away from pay secrecy. Hi, Boothler! morning
1: morning how are you today uh, so lovely to be here <laughs> I'm doing really well doing really
0: well have you you you're up early it sounds like you're an early riser I am uh, not by design um, I have become one out of necessity yeah I remember when we were planning this podcast you were like how early is early for you and I was like uh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what what times your your average wake up so I um, I'm actually trying
1: to get about seven to eight hours of sleep at the moment okay. Um. so I'm I'm waking up uh, slightly later, around 5.30 or quarter to six. That's Um, later.
0: Yeah. I don't want to know what earlier is. (laughs) Earlier is just
1: sleepless nights, (laughs) thinking about all the things that can go wrong with whatever launch you're working on.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a dream. Well, awesome. Well, I'm really excited to learn about your journey and essentially what led you to become Africa CEO of Jumo World great so i i think for me right from the beginning i've always
1: been interested in how things can fit together how you build things Mm. and and that hasn't necessarily always been in, in, in financial services. I actually had my start working for a, a travel tech company before we actually called it travel tech. And, uh, and really what we were trying to do was make travel more available to the man on the street. But also what we wanted mm. to do was to make the opportunity, the business opportunity of travel available to more SMEs across Africa, right? And, and that was just a, a fantastic opportunity to understand an industry and a system, who gets included, who gets left behind. And I became incredibly passionate about that. I became passionate about helping young graduates enter the industry and build careers, so people from previously disadvantaged backgrounds and I just kind of grew from there and I think in the second phase of my career I then moved on to financial services and I was prized actually to see how we had so many of the same problems mm. where products were not being designed for the many right and needed to be adapted and it's not just about shrinking the product right it's about understanding what those customers need so it was Exactly the same issue that we had faced in tourism, like how do you make it available to the man on the street? Well, you have to change the product. Also realizing that just like in tourism, when it comes to the actual business and who makes money from that business, it was also exclusive, right? And so really thinking about how you allow more people to, to participate and unlock more opportunities. And one of the things which was obviously a common thread in in both of these industries that I I worked in was technology Mm. and what that can do. The second thing that they all had in common was the importance of having the right data in order to shape the product correctly, right? Whether it's pricing it, where to distribute it, how to distribute it, information was so, so critical. The last thing was about capital, right? Because, you know, he who has the capital makes the rules. And so if, you know, small businesses don't have capital or, you know, startups, you have to think very innovatively to access the right capital at the right cost in order to be able to, to participate. And so, um, you know, as I became more interested in kind of the more systemic challenges Of financial services, I think the natural transition for me was to move from the bigger corporate banking and retail financial services environment into a startup. And I actually met Andrew Watkins Ball, who's the the group CEO of Jumo, quite by accident. As I was going through this exploration, I was doing my MBA dissertation on the issue of financial inclusion. Mm -hmm. And um, Jumo was one of the companies that I was interviewing and some of the people that I met there were very eager that I, I meet him for a coffee and just a chat. And 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 that uh, that evolved into him saying, you know, you've got to join us. This is, you know, I think that our thinking around the customer and and where we need to take financial services on the continent is, is super aligned and and that's really how I, I joined Jumo and um and started to build my career there.
0: That's awesome. That happened by chance and everything happens in in such a funny way. We were chatting last week about the different units you build throughout your career and throughout different businesses. You learned about being an entrepreneur at the age of 23 when you built the business division in China from scratch with your travel tech business. It it seems that the the theme throughout your career has been building units from the ground up. What are the steps you take to, to see these units succeed?
1: That's true. That that's definitely uh, been a, a theme in, in in my career. I think that you know it starts with first recognizing that there is a gap that needs to be filled, right? Mm. And that it is it is a gap that large enough, right, that there's a big enough problem to solve, and that it is it is something that will have longevity and continued benefit. I suppose it, it is often when you're building units within a business, it's a form of entrepreneurship, right? Mm. So you, you have to think about, you know, what is the value that this will create for this organization in the long term, because you have to sell it. You know, and when when I was 23 and um, I went to the founder of the travel tech company that I worked for, you know, he 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 is a French guy and he was kind of like, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, there is this emerging opportunity in China. We had predominantly been operating in Europe uh, at the time. I did have a, a Japan portfolio already. Mm-hmm. So what I wanted to do was to, to expand that to, to cover more of Asia. I had my numbers, but I think with, with any opportunity, you've got to show that you're leaning into an opportunity with large numbers, mm. right? And I had a very clear business case. So I think that's the first thing. Then I think the second thing is being able to to show that you have the ability to bring in the right skills and capabilities, to attack that opportunity. And, you know, I had actually identified some Mandarin-speaking consultants who could join my team. So I had really done my homework around how this would work. I had uh, reached out to a couple of the wholesale tourism companies. I had uh, connected with the um, South African Tourism Agency as well. And so with anything, you have to show that this is not just kind of a pie-in-the-sky idea. Yeah, a lot of research back up. Exactly. It needs to feel real to whoever you're selling it to, right? Um, and and I think that's important. But I think the other thing that you always need to think very carefully about, just like in building a business, is you need to have thought about whether the necessary conditions for the unit that you're building exist in that organization, mm. Right because otherwise you will face a transplant rejection okay. when you kind of bring this. <laughs> yeah in. and and so and so I think in the context of of building the the China unit I knew that our organization had a track record of being willing to try new things even if they they fail and that there was it was accepted as a part of of innovating you know and um and i also knew that you know the incentive structure you know lent itself to being able to to build a team it, it it would be attractive for people to leave different roles and and join this mission i knew that the way in which we designed our products and negotiated our commercials allowed a level of flexibility which going into a market like china would be necessary. So um, I think those are some of the things that you you need to think really, really carefully about when you build a unit within a business. And I think the last thing I would say is you need to know that launching it and starting is truly just the beginning. Mm. A lot of the real work will begin after you launch, where you have to make sure stakeholders remain supportive, share all of the wins be transparent as well around what's not going well that gives people a lot of comfort that nothing is being hidden and i think and i've done this a couple of times right you know post that i i did it building a a new marketing unit uh, in in retail financial services and 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 many different uh, units within jumo and truly for me i think that is a formula that is proven and and which certainly i have refined and found super useful over the years
0: did you have a mentor throughout this because you were taking on a beast you were young you had never done this before how did you tackle that in the in the first opportunity with with the china
1: business i actually didn't have a mentor certainly not in wow in a formal way um that we talk about it okay but i'll tell you what one thing i've always had is a a really strong network of people around Mm. me and you know we (laughs) we used to have like a, a young professionals club that used to meet at at, at our apartment, and we, would I love share what we were love <laughs> that. and we would share things that were happening to us in in our various workplaces. and And we were all doing very, very different things. So bringing a huge diversity of experience. Some of my friends were in consulting, so working for the big four consulting firms. Some were in advertising, some were in banking. And so really, when we came together, I think that we essentially created just an incredible resource for ourselves mm. without even having mentors per se.
0: Awesome. In in the beginning of this conversation, you t- touched on your MBA paper and um, the topic that you touched on I think is so interesting first of all. My team hosted a clubhouse room surrounding the topic, is there a new unicorn coming to Africa? And Many participants mentioned they don't want to see a Western fintech come into the African market and dominate, but would rather see an African-born payments business thrive. Boothler, we chatted about your MBA paper touching on why we're not seeing the full benefits of financial inclusion in South Africa and, and how this ties into the emerging markets not creating innovative products. This is a loaded question, but what is the reason for this? And, and how do we solve it? Can we solve it? Mm, yeah. <laughs>
1: It, it, i'm going to try to be to be brief okay. so i am an optimist so you know my answer to to that will be yes we can solve it i think i have just a kind of bottomless belief in mm. the the ingenuity on on this continent and 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 in south africa as well so i believe we can solve it but i think what that will take is us really facing up to what the challenges are, right? And we spoke, you know, early on in this conversation around capital. He who has the capital or she who has the capital, you know, makes the rules. And I think that unless we can solve the issue of access to capital in order to build you know th- this will this will remain a problem and i think a lot has actually been said in in the african um, tech ecosystem around this who gets funded who gets the best terms mm-hmm. and why so that is something that we we have to we have to address head on right and then i think the other thing that we we need to look at is whether companies can actually get uh, startups that is can can actually get a, a chance to grow to unicorn status yeah. um in the south african context in particular one of the things that was quite interesting in my research was that we could see this acquisition trail so most of the businesses that really had good product market fit and gained reasonable momentum were typically acquired by the banks now this in and of itself is not a bad thing mm. But what I I did is I actually also interviewed some of these startups that had been acquired to understand what changed about them post that, right? Because I was also looking at their product development cycle, even just how their communication and and things like that changed post acquisition. And, um, you know, one of the things that became apparent was that it was quite difficult to, to maintain that innovative culture. Yeah. Post acquisition. And so um, some of the ideas I, I toyed around with in my dissertation was that because capital is, is so important and being well funded is so important, perhaps different structures need to be explored in terms of how these businesses are, are kind of absorbed into the into the larger, larger structures. So so that's so that was one thing. Okay then the the second thing is around barriers to entry right and i think you know regulation is absolutely necessary and i'm a huge fan right because consumers need to be protected but i think that it's a really challenging space because sometimes what happens is in trying to protect and empower the end consumer regulation can introduce very high costs of compliance Mm. Right now, these can be in the form of licensing or just all of the different things that a company is required to do in order to fully comply and participate in a highly regulated space, which typically anything to do with finance, technology and processing of information is. Right. So unfortunately, what that means is that there are very few players that can actually scale those hurdles and, you know, just get a ticket to the game in the first place. And I think that what we've seen is that in in other African countries, the regulators have been quite progressive here, whether it's by creating sandboxes Mm. or saying that, you know what, we'll allow you to innovate for a while and then regulate when we have a better understanding of what is actually happening, right? And I think that's something which is which is really important. And the last kind of theme which I think is is worth exploring here is is one that is about diversity, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that when when you don't have diversity and variety, you just are not really setting yourself up for a system that can scale and that will foster the growth of future unicorns right so you have to create the conditions that allow for this for this diversity in terms of who gets to to participate and that means you know really being open to some of the, the leaders coming from slightly different backgrounds in terms of their their skills. So, you know, not necessarily everyone having a, a classical banking background, yeah. for instance, in financial services. And I think that's that's more of a social thing. And uh, But I think that shift does definitely need
0: to happen. Diversity is a topic we can both talk about for hours. Moving towards a more controversial topic, focusing on gender diversity and pay equity, how do we move away from pay secrecy?
1: So I think that the first thing with um, this kind of shroud of secrecy that surrounds remuneration is we need to get people to buy into the benefits of transparency, right? Mm. And I, I think, you know, whenever I've spoken about this topic, I can see people visibly get uncomfortable Mm. like what do you mean like you mean everybody's salary and one of the questions I always ask is who stands to gain by us hiding what the remuneration structure in any organization is right and and actually you know I I think the you know the, the the benefits by far outweigh the negatives here but one of the things I've actually observed is that I think the root of this issue really comes from our discomfort as a society in talking about money, mm. especially as it relates to personal finance. And I think that this is a discomfort and a shame that actually needs to be eradicated because far beyond just uh, issues of pay inequality, it hurts us in every sphere, right? Yes. Um, when you talk about things like over-indebtedness, Right, that comes from again a secrecy and not talking about what can I truly afford. When you talk about the impending retirement crisis for us here in Africa, because we we have a very young population, but we are starting to you know to see some people getting into retirement age who who have no plan. Yes, and it's because we haven't spoken about that.
0: There's no education around it as it- well. Like I am. Fortunate to have people surrounding me being like Stacey, you need to have a retirement annuity. You you should have started at sixteen. Um, but who's who's helping us in this? Exactly. And but what what's worse, right, is that for for some people they think um, okay,
1: great, let me get a retirement policy. But again, we're not talking about money deeply enough, so we don't talk about mm. what what is a wise investment strategy. Right? Exactly. Do, you know, have you looked at, you know, your, your total effective rate that you're paying on your investments or are they just being eroded by some <laughs> investment banker that's driving yes. around in a fancy car? And, and for us to get to those truly important conversations that will help us build and transfer wealth and close the gap where there's inequality, we need to stop treating money like it's a, it's a taboo subject. Because it's not. It's very, very simple, as far as I'm concerned. We wake up, we go to work, whether it's a, a, an entrepreneurial endeavor or for a company, we exchange our life energy for money, and we want hmm. to make sure that it is a fair exchange, right? So let's put it on the table: equal work, equal pay. Because you have one life, and every hour you give cannot you cannot get it back. It is too precious for us to you know kind of. Uh, tread like on eggshells around this issue. Yeah. So so for me, I think it, it's very much about us understanding that this is not a shameful topic, that if we bring it into the light, we stand to, to benefit more than we stand to lose. And that in fact, this will create the platform for us to tackle so many other money issues that are truly standing between us and being able to be in to achieve financial freedom first, then to build wealth, and then mm. to transfer wealth to future generations, right? Yeah. Because that is really what we need on this continent. We need to not only create wealth, but we need to create it in a way that we're able to pass it on to future generations.
0: I remember my first job, I was paid 20% less than another male at the same level as me and I was a higher performer looking at KPIs. And this was just a conversation we never had. I was just so confused how we could even position it this way. But then I went back to it and thought, okay, this was a this was a salary I asked for. So there's also a lack of education on that side. Is how do we know what to ask for going into our first job? Because once we... Are at a certain level or at a certain income um, bracket, it's hard to it's hard to grow faster because when you go into your next position, they always ask for your previous pace. That what do you think of this?
1: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. There is that that tendency to kind of peg it to to your last job. So I spoke earlier on about how when I was kind of starting out my career, we had you know this this network of of friends and kind of a mentorship circle, as it were. And one of the things thinking back. I didn't think much of it at at the time, but we spoke about money, you know, like Mm -hmm. we spoke about what we wanted to target and about the offers. And so what happened with that was that I actually started to, to get a really good sense of pay per sector really understand like you know if i had friends who worked in fmcg and they would go you know if i move from assistant brand manager to brand manager this is what happens etc mm. and and they would and they would share that and that was incredibly helpful and in fact my part of my decision you know to to move from from tourism to the the financial services sector was just looking at what my income trajectory would, would look like. Right. And, and, and I had a really good sense of that because we were having those conversations. So I think that's another resource that, you know, you really can use in order to, to benchmark and ask for, you know, what you're, what you're worth. And certainly Mm -hmm. what that job should be, should be paying, I think they are starting to be more resources that kind of scour you know each sector to to understand what the the salary ranges look like I still think there's insufficient information as far as that's yeah. concerned but at least it's moving slowly in the right direction
0: Butler, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I I really, really enjoy chatting with you. It's been an absolute pleasure and um, talking about all of my favorite things. So thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Awesome. Where's the best place for listeners to reach you? Best
1: place is on LinkedIn. Um, I I am on there quite regularly and I'm also on Twitter at Bhutle
0: Awesome. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye bye.